So the next part of this is for us to get into the into the eightfold path, uh, which is I mean that's what this has all been leading up to. How do we do this? Is going to provide you with some of your motivation if, as we go through the eightfold path, you can see that indeed this is something that sounds reasonable, sounds doable, makes sense. Yeah, I can see how this works. Yeah, I can see how that would work if I did. Then that's that's a really, you know, once that's done, all that remains is the practice. Now, there's a lot of refinements to the practice. There's a lot of things that we can, ha can have already and will in the future continue to talk about in order to make this practice work and make the greatest progress with it. But that's where we really need to begin is... I want you to get to the place where you can say, "Okay, I can see, I can see where this could work," and then you might combine that with the feeling that, well, if this really could work, what else is there that's better for me to spend my time doing? Right? Which that could be a really that could inspire a lot of faith, right? But, uh, the kind of confidence is that I'm going to give it a really good shot because if this does work, I sure wouldn't want to have missed out on my chance. Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is, as we see how, uh, how it unfolds and how it works, maybe you can look at it and say, well, even, even if I don't even make it halfway, no matter how far I make it, it'd be so much better than going on the way I'm going. But I'd like you to believe that you can make it the whole way. So, um, so. Are you clear on the four stages of enlightenment and how they relate to the first three of the Four Noble Truths? It's a really important place for us to be. Okay. Can you go ahead and redo that? Because I was thinking that through. Well, I'm, I'm asking you to go ahead. Do you mind? To remind you? Yeah. Go through it again? Yeah. Okay. Is that okay? Okay. Simplified here. Yeah. What it comes down to is we have to get past the delusion that traps us. All right? And that delusion, that the one that's holding us captive to craving, that allows this compulsion to arise in us and rule our lives, has two roots. The, the identification we have with our ego self with a mentally constructed idea of who we are. And we could talk about that in some more detail. might be a good idea, too. And then the other route is that inherent sense, that subtle feeling that, you know, no matter what I know about anything else, I still feel like I am a separate thing, a self. And you all have that feeling, right? And you all also have this idea of who you are, the ego self, which we can talk more about to clarify. The other's a bit simpler. It's simpler, but it's harder to overcome. But overcoming one of these marks the beginning, the first stage of enlightenment, in the sense that it's the point where you're not ever going to slide back from that. Once you've seen, once you've seen through that part of the illusion, uh, once you've peeked behind the curtain, you're never going to believe in the Wizard of Oz. Okay? And then the end of the path is marked by 
overcoming the, by having that sense of being a separate self disappear, which is a very liberating thing, extremely liberating. And then in between, the Buddha distinguished two stages that mark the elimination of the craving. And you eliminate the craving in two stages. First stage, you get it down to the point where it's still there, but it doesn't overwhelm you anymore. And then you get rid of all of that craving. So those are the four stages of enlightenment. So the four stages are marked by I mean, everything we've been talking about. Suffering caused by craving, cravings caused by delusion. Enlightenment begins with overcoming one root, continues through the elimination of craving, and ends with the elimination of the other root. So, it can never grow back. Yeah. Um, lately you've been talking about where in the brain these things happen. And um, well, I've been thinking about the right versus left side of the brain a lot because you talked about them over our, well, you've talked about it several times lately. Um, oh, golly. Anyway, so let's say the right part of the brain experiences reality just, that's it, that's reality. And the left side of the brain processes it and makes up stories about it. Is that right? Those things that you're saying are basically true, yes. So, when you're enlightened, are you actually accessing a different part of your brain that you weren't before, or or putting them together? Oh, that's not the right word, but anyway, you know what? You probably know what I mean. Synthesizing them in some different way. It, it, the latter is more what it's what it's like. I think is. You know, I, I, I don't think there's, there's any new part of your brain to access that you haven't already been using, but using it in a very different way, in a, an integration, a synthesis, uh, I, I think that better describes... Or a disinhibiting of the right part of the brain? Well, I, I, I'm afraid that as soon as we start talking in those terms, we start doing two things. Oversimplifying things, on the one hand, um, well, that's probably the worst thing that we're doing is, is we're oversimplifying, and so we're going to start to fall into very simplistic ways of, of thinking. Okay. But we're definitely using our brain and our mind, and that's something that we can give consideration to sometime is the relationship to the mind and the brain and the difference between them. Well, now, the right side of the brain tends to be um, less separate. I mean, there's... What's the movie that was about that woman who had a stroke and she... Jill Bolte-Taylor, yeah, Stroke of Insight. Yeah. And, and was it the left side of her brain that was... A stroke on the left side, yes. And so, suddenly she was dealing with the world completely from the right side of her brain. Is that correct? And she lost the, the boundaries between herself and yeah. the world. Which is what... Isn't that sort of what we're talking about? Yes, I except mean, I think that, it is what we're talking except about. Except that we're not talking uh, we're not talking about arriving at that through destroying one part of the brain. <laughs> well, no, but if we can But we're talking about them. arriving at it through destroying one part of the illusion. <laughs> yeah. But yes, now okay, this is an an interesting thing. I mean in that that does everyone everyone here or most of you familiar with Jill Bolte Taylor and the oh, yeah. And the video called uh, uh, "Stroke of Insight." Yeah. Or no, "Stroke of Insight." Stroke of Insight. Yeah. Yeah. Stroke of insight. Yeah. Stroke of insight. Okay. You might want to look it up on the internet. It's a little video that you can watch. Anyway, what she does is essentially take her experience, compare it to the description of enlightenment, and say, "Wow, this must be what it's like to be enlightened." And I think there's some very strong similarities, but I don't think they're the same thing. Okay? 
Yes. I remember a seminar a while ago where they were talking about the brain activity, and it was sort of interesting because the person was doing it, and I don't remember his name. Rick Hansen. Yeah, right, Rick Hansen. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, was showing a lot of maps of people who were enlightened and where the activity was in the brain, but when they got to having the activity of the self and doing thinking I, there wasn't a set, any place that was specifically dedicated to something turning one in the brain. Yeah, it's a very distributed, yeah, many right, different so it's locations. sort of an interesting piece. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes? Well, um, all this talk about the mind and the brain is eliminating, it seems to me, the heart, which is the seat of, well, it's the seat of compassion, perhaps, and maybe also the seat of the self. Can you repeat your question? I don't know about that. Uh, I'm not sure that it was quite a question, it was sort of a comment. Right. I think in Chinese medicine, they associate the mind with the physical heart theory. Yeah, sure. Well, what we're talking about, I think in the sense in which we're talking about it, is it includes both the intellectual faculties of mind and what you would call the heart emotional faculties and the part of that part of us in which love and compassion and so forth reside. We're talking about that as a whole. So, and um, all that we know for sure is you do anything to the brain and it affects the mind. All these different parts of the mind. And the mind does certain kind of things and it produces measurable effects in certain parts of the brain. So to say that the mind is in the brain is, uh, that's a big jump from anything that we actually know for certain. But when I'm, when I'm speaking of mind though, it very much includes compassion and everything else, the way that I'm using it. And when somebody is practicing compassion or experiencing compassion, it makes a part of their brain light up. I don't know that there's any other organ in the body that probably produces a response of that kind of compassion. So let's not get bogged down the heart versus the mind, okay? Yes? I wanted to come back to Blake's question about enlightenment and um, it's kind of like a whole slew of questions, but along the lines of what you were asking before, like, okay, so if it's so possible, how prevalent is it really? Why isn't it, doesn't it seem more prevalent? Um, how prevalent is it, do you, do you feel, in the Buddhist community? How prevalent is it, do you feel, amongst American teachers and practitioners? How prevalent do you feel like it is in your lineage? Um, that kind of approach, and, and, and why? Is it not more or less or? Yeah. All right, there, there's a. <laughs> okay, how, talking about enlightenment. How many people are enlightened? Who's enlightened? Are, are, there, are there enlightened American practitioners? Are most of these people in Thai monasteries enlightened or not? How about all these? Tibetan lamas, are, all, are they all enlightened or not? How come there aren't more enlightened people? How come every now and then when you get an honest Western here who's actually willing to say something about it, um, they often say, well, I'm not completely enlightened yet. <laughs> okay. Well, these, these are questions that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. When you read the sutras, one of the things that strikes you, absolutely strikes you right away, is people are getting enlightened right and left. And they become stream enterers, that's the first stage, you know. Or they become arahats, that's the final stage. And, you know, and, and they're, they're sort of going through these stages. That's, that's happening all over the place. And uh, when the Buddha died, 
he was surrounded by this huge crowd of bhikkhus, and he said, there's not a single one present who isn't at least a stream nature. You know, and so how does this compare with what we find now? And how do you tell? It's hard to know. Within the Buddhist tradition, since the time of the Buddha, not during the time of the Buddha, but since the time of the Buddha, there's been a great taboo about speaking about these things. It's one of the rules that the Buddha set down is he forbid any of the bhikkhus to make claims about spiritual attainment in order to puff themselves up and make themselves, make them, make themselves appear important. And that rule, sometime long after the Buddha had passed, was trans, transmuted into this idea that you never speak about it, you never ask about it, you never tell anybody, the only person that might ever know that you're a Buddha was your own teacher. Or the only person that might ever know you're a stream entrant is your own teacher. And if you tell anybody else, you know, it's a big no-no. And I think that's done a horrible disservice. Now, it is really true that, you know, just as being rich and famous, being, being a, a high spiritual being is one of those things that people can have uh, uh, great ambition towards and attach a lot of value to and might therefore want to present themselves as being when they're not. And we all do hold high spiritual beings in, in great esteem. And so it would be to the, in the selfish self-interest of a person, I would be, what the heck, we probably all think of a lot of examples of, of, uh, that we've heard about, of people who have, are enjoying the benefits of convincing a group of people that they are some kind of saint. Back to the Saints and Psychopaths by uh, you know, that, that book that I was talking about. So there's always a danger that people are going to make claims, and the, this kind of a rule could help to prevent that. But it does a terrible disservice because it leaves us all wondering: Is there really anybody that's ever done any of this? That's very frustrating, and. Uh, now, of course, that doing that also has it. It, it, it doesn't. It, it really contributes to the very problem that you might imagine it's going to solve. Because if everybody agrees, none of us is going to say whether we are or not. Then we can sort of hint and let people come to conclusion that we are, mm -hmm. and it'll never come out whether you know can't tell you that, but you can think it if you want. <laughs> well, I, I think that this is serious business. I don't think that the Buddha ever really had the intention that people were going to go around getting enlightened and not tell anybody about it. Because you have to know that people are succeeding at this path in order for... It's part of that inspiration that you need. And... There's a problem, how do you know? Can you take somebody's word for it? Well, considering that people can delude themselves, they can not only lie, they can delude themselves. Taking people's word for it is not necessarily a good way to go. But I think it should be spoken about openly. And uh, I have met quite a few people at different stages of enlightenment. And they do exist. There is right now, a lot of uncertainty amongst different people. Uh, there are certain people who put themselves out there openly on the internet in books they've written as arhats. But then you look at what they say about what it means to be an arhat and you say, gee, that sounds more like what the Buddha said a stream entry was. You know. So there's a certain lack of clarity. But the Buddha did give some very, very clear descriptions of what these different stages are. And, of course, you can't know the mind of somebody else, but if you watch their behavior long enough, 
you can compare their behavior to the descriptions the Buddha provided. And of course, if they open up and are willing to speak with you honestly, then you have not only your, your perspective looking at them as an outsider over time and noticing how they behave, but you can also find out from inside. What is their experience? How do they experience themselves and their life? And I think that, that, that that's one of the things, I think that's one of the things that should characterize our new modern Western Buddhism, is that we have those kinds of conversations and that we're not afraid to ask and that we're not afraid to say. <clears throat> so I probably should speak a little bit from the first person. Well, to begin with, yes, I have passed that threshold of stream entry. On the other hand, I don't believe I've arrived at the end of the path. But actually the conclusion that I've come to as I continue to practice, I'm beginning to seriously doubt that there really is an end of the path in the sense that we picture it, it evolves in increasing degrees of subtlety and profundity. And I personally had the experience of thinking, well, this is as good as it gets, and then it gets better. Um, I do try to evaluate where I am on the path on the basis of what the Buddha said. And I don't, you know, that's really the only, that's the only framework for interpretation that I feel like is appropriate to use. It's the one that the Buddha said. And according to that, unlike some of these other people, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm an arhat. I do still have that inherent sense of being separate. But that isn't to say that I haven't had, that I don't have to a greater or lesser degree frequently on and off an experience of something that is totally the opposite of this sense of being separate. That, you know, I had the experience with all of you in this room, a feeling that we're one and I'm just the spokesperson for the rest of you. And I, I have feelings like that. I also have the experience, some, you know, as I said to Nancy, I believe it was yesterday morning, some days when I wake up, it takes me a while to figure out who I am. Because I do tap into other minds, other lives, other memories, things like that. This happens to me. The boundaries, I still experience myself as a separate self, but the boundaries are getting looser and looser all of the time. And um, it's quite a wonderful thing. It's quite a wonderful thing. And it's very liberating. It's, it's wonderful beyond imagination. I mean, I could not, I could not a few years ago have imagined, could not have pictured, I don't think I could have understood if myself of a few years ago were to have a conversation with myself today, myself of today could probably not effectively explain some of the things that are a part of my current path. There are some things, you know, today we worked a little bit with pain and suffering. And it's been interesting for me as a part of my path, the relationship with pain and suffering. However, there were a number of years ago, I don't remember how many, six, seven years ago, something like that. 
I had the first inkling, no, not the first inkling, I'd had inklings before that. The first experience to make me really wonder if something had changed about the way I experienced pain. I had a shop accident, I cut the ends off these two fingers, and I uh, had to go get them repaired and sewed back on and everything. And I was struck by the fact that this is, that didn't feel good, but, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't all that mental anguish, there wasn't a lot of emotional suffering, there wasn't a lot of resistance, there wasn't fear and terror or any of the other things that might have happened. That probably would have happened if I'd had an accident like that at another time in my life. And I wondered about that, but then I thought to myself, well, yeah, but, you know, um, this happens to people. The soldiers have serious injuries and they don't even notice they're injured in the heat and excitement of everything that's going on around them. People are in automobile accidents and uh, they'll help somebody else out of a burning vehicle before they even realize they've got a broken arm and things like that. And uh, it was a very wonderful person taking me to the hospital who was having a lot of trouble dealing with this. So. I was more concerned with that person, and so I could see, well, okay, <laughs> it's probably just that. I, you know, you know, my mind has temporarily blocked that out so I can deal effectively with the situation. And more recently, last February, um, I ended up having a, a bowel obstruction, a small intestinal obstruction. I had to have surgery for it, remove three pieces of small intestine. Leading up to that, I had several periods of, you know, four to six or seven hours each, in which I experienced some abdominal discomfort. And it was, it was so disturbing that I wasn't able to sleep, and it really bothered me. This happened over the course of a week, more than a week, uh, eight or nine days, I kept having these attacks. And during the day it wasn't so bad, I just sit like this and go on and watch TV with my folks, or carry on a conversation or do what I'm doing. But when it happened at night, I couldn't sleep. And then it finally occurred to me, I probably should get this looked at and figure out what this was about. So I went to the emergency room at UMC. And they put me in a little room and I'm waiting. Well, no, first of all, they put me in this little room. And they do a thing that they call triage. They go in and they decide how bad you are. Do we need to do something about you right away? Or can we let you wait till you know till we've got time? We take care of the other people first. And uh, the person doing the triage asked me totally the wrong question. They said, "On a scale of one to ten, how much is it bothering you?" I said, three. So I didn't see anybody for a long, long time. <laughs> but as I was laying there on a gurney, there was this big plastic. Thing on the wall with all these little smiley faces and unhappy faces and a scale of one to ten and a written description. And so with nothing else to do but to count the minutes on the clock on this side and to read that something <laughs> on the other and, and hope that this would go away, I read the sign. And when I read the sign, I realized what the problem was. So next time somebody came in to see how you're doing, how's your pain, I said, it's 10. See what it says up there? I've never had any pain worse than this. That, that's what it's like. Because I could examine the sensation and say, yeah, and that's what I did. Can I ever remember anything that... <laughs> and so right away, got me in, did a CAT scan, wheeled me into surgery, fixed me up. You know. But I knew that this, this something had changed in me probably changed a long time ago, and this event just made me aware of it. Because, yeah, I'm not very, pain doesn't bother me. A lot of things don't bother me, but pain doesn't bother me. I don't react to it mentally, emotionally. I know it's there. I don't like it. When a sudden pain comes up, I have, you know, it's like, well, there's a thorn in my toe, I want to get it out, or whatever it is. But I don't feel miserable in that same way. And later on, I came out of surgery. They gave me this uh, intravenous thing and put this little thing in my hand. They said, push the button 
whenever you need some pain relief. <laughs> okay. Great. And I was out of surgery, I don't know, one thirty, two in the morning, something like that. And then about 2 in the afternoon, a nurse comes in and says, you haven't been using the pain gadget. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I have. I pushed the button three or four times. But it turns out they were expecting that you would use this like every 10, 15, 20 minutes or something like that. They were also taking my blood pressure. And even though my subjective experience wasn't of a lot of suffering, my body kept responding. So they took my blood pressure, and I had this astronomical blood pressure reading. And so for the rest of my hospital stay and afterwards, I used the blood pressure cuff to tell me whether or not I needed pain medication. When the blood pressure went up, when it was sweat on my forehead, things like that, I said, yep, I need some more Demerol or whatever it was. So it's just, that's one of the changes that I've experienced. And this is really true, what we talked about today. It really happens. It's a change that really does come about. There's a lot of other things in my life that, you know, well. That's fascinating. Last September, I had precisely the same problem you did. Mm -hmm. My experience was vastly different. <laughs> did you, you had an intestinal obstruction? Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, that's what everybody told me. They said, they said, this is apparently one of those things that produces extreme distress. Yeah. I had three, three different pieces of my intestine removed to relieve this problem. But, you know, I want you to understand, and I think you know this. I'm not telling you this because I want you to have this idea of how great I am. I'm only telling you this because I want you to know that you can do this too. That things that seem absolutely amazing, otherwise impossible, astounding, they are possible. And they're not mysterious and they're not magical because we've been talking about exactly what needs to happen to create something like this. So and I'm just saying, take my word for it. In my experience, exactly the things that the Buddha said are true. The same thing's true of the other causes of suffering. Grief, the feeling you feel when somebody says some terrible thing about you, the feeling you feel when you perform some horrible gaffe in the presence of other people. All of these unpleasant emotional forms of suffering, they all have the same source. To the degree that you're not attached to an ego construct, they're not going to make you suffer anymore. To the degree that you're not attached to things, they're not going to make you suffer anymore. Either having them or not having them, craving them, desiring them, fearing them, whatever. It totally changes all of that. And the other part of it is true, too, that your life becomes far more meaningful. You have a really clear sense of, of purpose based on what you, what you can do and you want to do it. It's very satisfying. I love what I do. I enjoy what I do. Um, that handout you've got, as imperfect and filled with flaws as it is, you know, I was up till two o'clock yesterday morning finishing it off because I got a late start because I was doing all this other stuff previous to, so, you know. But uh, I love doing this. I love talking to you. What I really love is when, when, what I, I I love it when somebody makes great progress and is successful in their meditation. I love it when people have spiritual breakthroughs and they have insights and you know when they've made some progress on this path in themselves I really love that that's wonderful that's far more important to me than what anybody thinks of me and when somebody comes and says to me well oh I thank you so much what you said was so helpful or whatever you know the important thing is that is wow I'm so glad I know that I was able to do something to, to help you 
it makes my life, gives my life meaning to be able to do it. But the other thing too is that I'm not attached to it. If it doesn't work, I don't feel bad about it. I just feel like I'd like to try something, try a little harder, try something a little different next time, things like that. Okay. And I've met, I, I, I know and I've met a lot of other people who are at different places on this path, and it does happen. And one of the questions that I've been wrestling with for a long time that brings me here is why isn't this happening more often? And the conclusion that I've come to is that we've lost our way in a lot of important ways in the last 2,500 years. There are a lot of detours, a lot of sidetracks, a lot of false notions, which I am so lucky to be in North America just at the time that Buddhism is coming to North America from everywhere else. Because this is the opportunity we have to get back on track, to reinstate a form of Buddhism that is going to bring large numbers of people to the first and the second and the third and even the fourth stage of awakening. Right? And that's what needs to happen. And that's really what I've been after for the last few years. I have to look at my own experience and my own practice and try to say, well, what worked and what didn't? What just slowed me down? What was just a sidetrack? What's it really about? And what was the stuff that just got in the way? Because this does work, and it can, it can be as effective as it once was. You know, the Buddha supposedly had one conclave of arhats, of 1,250 arhats. Of course, the place it's supposed to happen apparently is smaller than this room. But. <laughs> Maybe that's something to do with the fact that they were all arhats. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's where I'd like to get to, you know. What I've seen since I've been teaching is I've been, I've been helping bring a lot of people along. And I have people that are making progress and are succeeding on this path. And I'm encouraging them to, to teach. They have to share, you know. It's part of the deal. Right? If I'm going to spend the time helping you, you know, I, I need you to go out there and extend this to a lot of other people. And get it out there. And it's very important to me that we all work together. You see, all of you, to some degree or another, are my guinea pigs. <laughs> because my experience, my own personal experience, is, is unique. And it's unrepeatable. And not only that, I'm like the rest of you. I can't even really reconstruct in detail my own path by which I got here. So I have to, so if I want to refine what I teach, I have to do it with you people as guinea pigs. I have to see what works. I have to see what you understand and what you don't understand and the practices that, that you're successful at and the practices that you're not successful at. And so, yeah, so I'm really lucky to be in this situation that I'm in where I get to do this and it gives my life some meaning and purpose. So. There are a lot of Buddhist teachers in this country. A really interesting question that I ask myself is, and where are they on the path? Are they stream enters? Are they, are, are, are they uh, once returners? Are they non-returners? Are they arhats? And you really have to, you have to have a fair bit of contact with somebody to get a sense of where they are. And I think what I, 
some that I know personally, I know are uh, at least uh, the ones I'm thinking of, they're at least at the second stage of enlightenment. I'll look at those that are at a greater distance, and some of those I'm pretty sure are, they're at least stream enterers. But I have to tell you, there's some of them out there that I know are not. It's quite clear, quite obvious that they are. There's a, a tremendous in my in my mind. There's a, a great subtlety to what you say, in terms of the path is both linear. You go through steps and practice and so on and so forth. And you progress, and there are stages and so on and so forth. But at the very same time. It's, it's my experience and observation that there is something that underlies that process, that undergirds it, that is not that one can't outline or explain or outline or read about. That, that there is something that is so deep and invisible that that evolves within oneself without one even trying. It, it is a beautiful thing. Yes. And it is um, the great mystery that underlies all of this. And I don't know whether the word faith has anything to do with that. I, it's, I think it's mixed in there somewhere. But, I don't know, I can't say any more than that. But as, as I hear you speak, I, I'm prompted to, to express that. Well, what I would call the thing that underlies, I call it Buddha nature. We all have Buddha nature. We all are Buddha nature. And that's, that's why we can all succeed at this path. And to the degree that you have faith and confidence in the right things that motivate you to do the things you need to do, that's your Buddha nature. You know, to the degree that you feel genuine, spontaneous compassion and genuine love rather than erotic and selfish love, this is your Buddha nature. We all have the Buddha nature, and that's really what we're trying to do, is we're awakening the Buddha nature. Um, if you thought you were going to become awakened, sorry to disappoint you, nobody becomes awakened, there's no awakening, there's only awakened behavior. You're going to awaken your Buddha nature, but actually your Buddha nature is already there. All you're doing is getting the stuff out of the way of it so that it can shine through. May I say one other thing? The, the other uh, day, I was listening to um, a talk by a Dr. Lawrence Krauss, who's a theoretical physicist. Mm -hmm. And he was speaking about the nature of emptiness as different from mathematical zero. Absolutely, yeah. And he was describing emptiness as a kind of virtual situation in which particles blink on and off. And that, well, I could say more about mm -hmm. that. But my point, and he also said that science now has reached the point that they can actually see and understand that there can be evolution, purely physical, biological evolution. That there, there isn't, what do they call it, uh, di divine, what it, whatever. Uh, like, yeah. Intelligent design? Yeah, yeah, Intel thank you, thank you. Design. Intelligent what design. Intelligent <coughs> design. That, there, that this, this, is, uh, this no longer is seen to be the case. That, 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 that life can, and consciousness can evolve 
purely, purely from out of the stuff of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm listening to all of this and I'm thinking that I can't quite buy that. <laughs> What's that? I said I think it's divine. There is some that other element. Consciousness arises from the universe. Yeah. Yeah, that's divine. Yes. Well. Yes. So, so then. experiences emptiness in a meditation or nothingness, I mean that zero point, that, that it, is, it is not empty. It is anything but empty. Yeah. Nothingness is not the same thing as emptiness. Um, that's an important point. Emptiness is, I think it's a, it's a confusing term. It's a notion, it's a greatly distorted notion. Um, to be empty means to be empty of being or having the apparent nature that the mind perceives things as having. The universe is empty of being the way we perceive it to be. Which says everything about our mind and nothing about the universe. <laughs> right? And so, suchness. That's the universe as it really is. Is empty. It's completely empty of being anything a human mind will ever conceive it as being. Because all conceptions of the human mind are just that. They're just conceptions in the human mind. The human mind is not capable of conceiving uh, ultimate reality. And that's what emptiness means. But ultimate reality? Well, isn't it kind of self-evident that everything, intelligence, and everything comes from ultimate reality. It is ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is it. It comes from ultimate reality. Intelligent design. That what they really, what that have, I have a neighbor who's really feels like there must be. There's no way that the world could be the way it was if there wasn't intelligence designing it. And I try to explain to him. Well, Terrell. What you're calling intelligence is what your brain does, right? Well, the universe created your brain, and your brain is just doing on a very limited scale what the universe has been doing all along. <laughs> so what you're trying to do is to go from this lesser organism with its lesser capacities and try to imagine that somehow something like it is, is, is driving all this. Well, it, it's not. The intelligence, the true intelligence, the universe itself is intelligent. And the, what we call intelligent is just a minor manifestation of that much greater intelligence. So, in your, in your deepest of the deep states, <laughs> would, would you say, because this is my biggest question, this is my biggest wondering. Um, would would you say that that when you when you when you um, reach the deepest of the deep states, that the essence of that sense w is akin to, or could be described as, real love, compassion? Would you say that 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 that, that fragrance 
the essence? Well, I, I would say that. Because, you see, what we conceive of as love is that principle operating in the universe which causes atoms to form from subatomic particles, molecules to form from atoms, stars and suns and people and frogs to form from molecules. There is a principle that penetrates all of reality which we don't always see and appreciate clearly, but when we do, we're so amazed by it that uh, we have a special name for it, love. But it's always, it's there everywhere, in everything. It's what drives everything. And when you open your eyes to, you know, somebody says God is love, I have to say right on. Oh, you, yeah, you. I mean, if God is supposed to be the source and the origin of everything, then to say God is love is 100% true, whatever you mean by that word God. Do you think that love, in in the in in terms of the physicality of the universe, could love be equated with gravity? <laughs> um, what I would say is that what we perceive as mind and what we perceive as matter uh, are not two different things, and that the stuff of the universe can look like matter under some circumstances and can be experienced as mind under other circumstances but it's all the same stuff. And as an analogy, or even a metaphor, to say that love is to the stuff the universe is made up of in the same sort of relation as being inherently, intrinsically a part of it. it the, the, the analogy with gravity as a part of the physical universe, yeah, right. Gravity is a property of physical reality whether it's space-time curvature as Einstein described it, or whether it's, it's this uh, uh, force that uh, emanates from particles that when there's enough of them together in one place pulls on other particles, no matter how you, it, it's, it's that kind of, it's embedded, it's totally in there. Love is as much of, well, let's put it this way, what we are, have in our limited perception as love is as, as much and as intrinsically a part of ultimate reality as to the physicist gravity is to matter. It's an inherent property. And it's not separable from it. 